So hear now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the ninth chapter, verses 37 through 42. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word and the imagery that is created here to our understanding. Let's ask him to illuminate our hearts and our minds. Father, um, what what a magnificent uh, part of Scripture this has been as we have studied this transfiguration. And we know that it's not over, that there's a comparison to be made here. And I pray that we will all make this distinction in our minds between what's going on at the top of the mountain or what went on at the top of the mountain and what's going on at the bottom. And we will put it into the context of, of your glorious good news, that it will speak to us directly from this Mount of Transfiguration, that we will understand and appreciate and just simply bask in the glory that you have at the top of the mountain and then really truly appreciate what you came to do at the bottom of the mountain. And we will give you all the glory in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Raphael of Urbino was a, one of the great Italian Renaissance masters. He lived, uh, was born right at the end of the 15th century and he lived into the 16th century. Um, he only lived about 37 years, um, uh, but he was extremely prolific. He was a gifted architect and painter. Um, he was one of supposedly or is so-called great three of the Italian Renaissance, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, and Raphael. Um, and he did a lot of work, of course, in those days the major patron of the arts was the Roman Catholic Church, so his work has that slant to it. But I, I wanted you to see one of his paintings this morning. It's the painting that is on the front of your, 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 your bulletins. Hopefully you'll be able to see it on the screen also, not quite as good of a picture because of the perspective. But I wanted you to see, this was the last painting that Raphael um, painted. In fact, many people believe that he so completely dedicated himself to this painting and worked so hard that that's what actually killed him. Uh, even though you really can't see it, it, it is an unfinished work. But I'm not here to, I didn't bring it so that we can have an art appreciation class here this morning. Basically what I want you to do, the only thing I want you to see is the contrast. I want you to notice what's going on on top of the map. There are two scenes that are juxtaposed here. Now, 
on the top of the mountain, everything is bright. The colors are very light. The glory of Christ can clearly be seen. The look on the people's faces. And of course, there's that, you know, Roman Catholic mysticism, strange people there that aren't there. But nonetheless, the, the disciples, they have that, that look of, of awe on their face as they look at the refulgent Shekinah of Christ. Now, Look down at the bottom of the hill and notice that all of a sudden everything is dark except for that one shining lady and nobody really knows who she is or why she's highlighted in light. Oddly enough, she shows up in more than one of Raphael's paintings, um, but she's in what's known as a serpentine pose. And and so some people think, but because the boy, the the demoniac, is standing, that this is the demon recently cast out of the boy. Interesting look, because it's a it's a, an attractive woman, and that tells us that you know, as Satan, as the scripture says, Satan described disguises himself as an angel of light. But nonetheless, other than her, everything's in shadows. Everything is dark. The faces are contorted and twisted and angry. There's contention. There's demonic activity going on at the bottom of the the the, the mountain. And and basically, that's all I want you to see. That's the whole reason I brought that. It's because I just wanted you to see that graphic representation of the great difference, the distinction, the contrast between what we just saw on the top of the mountain of 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 transfiguration where Jesus' glory was revealed to us, where God just kind of pulled back his humanity to show us his divinity in the most glorious scene. But then what's going to happen is the cloud is going to come and, and, and then when it, it, when it leaves, after God says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Well, Jesus, the man, is going to be left alone and he's going to descend the mountain into a, a place of evil and apostasy and unbelief and demonic oppression. And brothers and sisters, what I think we're seeing here in Luke is another one of the great living parables. A living parable is, it doesn't question the historicity of what we're looking at. It's not that it was just made up and some metaphor, but rather that God brings a, a, events around that in and of themselves, not only is the event spectacular, but the event tells a story. And I believe the story that we have before us is the story of the gospel. Jesus in glory, taking on the attributes of a human being, coming and descending down to this sick sewer of a world that we live in. And he did so specifically to set the captives free, which is exactly what he's going to do. So I hope this morning to bring that living parable out as we go through the text. Now, I have a real problem, actually, with the context this morning and the fact that there's just too much of it. Luke is a masterful storyteller, and he is weaving all of these different threads together. So I'm just going to have to refer to the context. I mean, we'd be here 30, 40 minutes just talking about the context if I were to do that. But but I'm going to bring it out, if I can, as we make our way through the text. But there is one thing I want to make sure that we remember. And that is what we saw, what I just described, what we saw on top of the mountain. Jesus transformed before us. And the humanity peeled back so that we could see his divinity. Now, if you remember, what happened was Peter... He saw that glory and he completely misinterpreted it. 
You know, he wanted to build tabernacles. He wanted to hold on to it. He wanted to keep that glory there. And he's thinking to himself, oh, this is wonderful. The kingdom of God is upon us. The glory of Christ is here. Uh, The redemptive plan is coming to its conclusion. And Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. He's taking the event that he's seeing and he's twisting it. He's putting into the context of his own cultural expectations. Well, what I hope to show you is the same things going on at the bottom of the hill with these other nine apostles. And the reason that they're not able to effectively exercise the faith that Jesus has given them is because they've got their heads in the, well, the sewer rather than in the kingdom. And that's the distinction I wanted to make this morning, so hopefully I will be able to bring that out in the text as we go along. So let's dive into it. You know that Luke loves to set the scene, and that's what he does in the 37th verse. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. Now, there's a couple of things we want to see in there. Apparently, Jesus and his apostles have spent the night on the mountain after this great transfiguration, or perhaps the transfiguration occurred in the just pre-dawn hours, and so they've been up all night, if, if you will. But it would have taken them some time to get down at least a 4,000-foot mountain if we picked the right one. But it, And so there's plenty of time for a full-blown controversy to have started down at the base of the mountain. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that Mark, for instance, has a much longer handling of this, almost three times as long as Luke and Matthew. And and so Luke is concise for a particular purpose. And so he skips all the discussion that goes on about Elijah and all of that, that Mark carries as they make their way down the mountain. We're also going to skip. Now, we, we may go to Mark every now and then just to flesh out what's going on some of the details, but um, we're, we're, we're not going to divert from what I think is Luke's purpose, which is to show us this great distinction, this contrast between what Jesus is, where he came from, what we know about him, and what he came to do, and how we benefit from that. So um, he's coming down, so, so there's going to be a lot of omissions. The last thing I want you to notice is that when it gets down to the bottom of the mountain, there's a great crowd that has gathered there. Now, that kind of helps us place this. Uh, I've not gone in too deeply as far as which mountain this is on. The scholars love to banter back and forth about those things. I've just kind of skipped it all together. But this does seem to place us not way up in Caesarea Philippi where Mount Hermon is, where Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, but rather down in Galilee because you really wouldn't have a great crowd in that Gentile area. Mark tells us that there are scribes and we assume Pharisees that are there as part of of that. So more than likely, it tells us we have made the trip down to Galilee. Now, as I go through this, I just want to kind of try to keep on pointing out 
what I see as the imagery of this. Once again, a living parable. And please forgive me. I have to a degree allegorized certain elements of this. In other words, I feel that what we're seeing is the the humiliation and incarnation of Christ. In a sense, we, we see his glory. We see where he came from, the glory he had with the Father before the foundations of the world. And he set that aside, not through subtraction, but through addition. Because he put on the attributes of a human being set aside his glory and walked amongst us and he descends the mountain and he comes down and he finds himself in the sewer literally the sewer that we live in I refer to it that way all the time a wicked world an apostate world an unbelieving world an immoral world a demon possessed world under the influence of Satan. And so when he comes down and this, this, this boy who represents, at least in the way I'm looking at it, those that he came to save, the elect, those that he has come, the sheep that he's the great shepherd of. He comes down and this boy is brought to him and he's demon possessed. He's bound by the evil one. As all of us are, folks, before we come to his saving grace. And so I, I see this as a magnificent picture uh, again, the boy as the as as those Jesus came to save the 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 demon was he is a particularly nasty demon. The demon is the one who's holding the boy in his grip, and Jesus who came to set the captives free. You see, we're going to see all of that as we make our way through this. Well, going on to the next verse, and behold, look at this. The scripture says, "A man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son.'" For he is my only child. Now apparently what has happened is that this man has brought his demon-possessed son to see Jesus. And and Jesus isn't there. He's up on the mountain. So for reasons we'll talk about in a moment, he turns to the disciples. And we're going to find out that they actually could not do it. But as soon as he sees Jesus, he rushes up to him and begs him, Lord, take a look at my son. Now, he's not saying, take a look at my son, you know, see, see what you think. No, that's, that's a plea. He's begging Jesus, show mercy upon us. Uh, 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 show compassion because my son is under the influence, as we will see, of a demon. But he's my only child. And, and Luke's the only one who carries this particular detail. And that just makes it all the more poignant. And it's not the first time, if you remember back to the... To the raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. She was an only child. Or the widow of Nain. Who had lost her only son. And was in the process of burying him. When Jesus raised him from the dead. It just makes it that much more. um, Of a deep emotional. Compassionate kind of healing. That when the healing is made. There's a only child. Who is uh, restored to their parents. Well anyway. He goes on and begins to tell Jesus of the trouble that he's having now. And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Now, most of us will read that and we will associate those symptoms with an epileptic um, seizure or another seizure that would be like that. But this father rightly discerns the source of this problem. This is more than just a normal um, epileptic seizure. There, there is demonic activity here and it is obviously 
very obvious. I guess that's redundant, but it is very obvious as, as Mark makes it very clear. It says it was often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. That, that word shatter that, that, that Luke uses is translated by the New American Standard as maul. It mauled him. And you can just imagine a great cat like a lion with those big claws just ripping and mauling somebody. It is a word that means to, um, uh, to mistreat someone so badly as to cause Severe physical or bodily harm. That's the situation that we're in. But don't miss that last thing that he says. And we'll hardly let him go. Once once this demon gets this this child. And we're going to see that apparently there's stronger and weaker demons. But this is a particularly nasty one. A particularly difficult one. As Jesus will later say on the very end of this story in Mark. The, the disciples ask. Well why, why couldn't we throw them out? And Jesus is going to say. Because this kind can only be thrown out by prayer. By a, a, a strength of prayer. And by faith, we're going to find out in just a moment. So this is a particularly nasty demon. And in that, brothers and sisters, I think what we are seeing here, again, to put it back in the living parable, we are seeing the stronghold, the grip that Satan has upon the world. I mean, he's not going to let it go. You know, you may remember back when you first got saved. I certainly remember when I got saved. And all of of a sudden there's this glory because Christ is in my life, but the devil's not going to let me go. He keeps reminding me that, 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 you know, I'm a sinner and he wants me to stay in the sewer. So he, he, he hangs on, grabs on and holds on. He's not very willing to let those he has controlled go. And that's exactly what we see with this, this poor son. Um, once again, um, a very symbolic connection between the state of the world and the, 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 the fact that Jesus came to release us, to save us from that world. Well, anyway, he goes on and, and says after this, getting into um, really the core of, of this passage, um, the 40th and 41st verses. But he says in the 40th verse, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Okay, this is very significant here, so let's take a little bit of a closer look. He begged. Now, now that word doesn't mean just to show up and say, help, can anybody help me? No, it means very pointedly. It, it means that whoever you're pleading with to do something, you have the expectation that they can do it. So for whatever reason, this man brought his son, obviously looking for Jesus to heal him. When Jesus was not there, he turned to his disciples with the same expectation. Perhaps it was just because they were his apostles uh, or more than likely, if you remember in a very big part of this, Jesus has just sent the 12 out into the towns and villages of Galilee, given the power to cast out demons to heal the sick and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. So they already have the power for this. So probably the man um, recognized that probably the man um, understood that, that that these that these apostles should be able to throw out the demon, but they couldn't. 
Now, you see, here's where we start getting into, I think, the very key of what Luke is telling us. Why couldn't they? Why couldn't these nine throw out the demon? Now, granted, he's a strong demon. I realize that. But Jesus has already given them the power and authority to cast out demons and the faith to make it happen. So what's the reason that these disciples are unable to throw out this demon? Well, Luke's not going to actually use this text until the 17th chapter, but Matthew tells us right off the bat, when they asked Jesus, how come we couldn't throw him out? This is what Jesus says, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible to you. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to kind of key on this. I could go off on a rabbit trail here. I'm going to desperately try not to because there's so much other things that I want to see. But this is such an abused passage. This is so wrongly taught. All right. It, could Jesus actually be saying to these men, you have no faith? That, 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 that if you had even the little bitty tiniest bit of faith that you can tell a mountain to move from one side to another. But he's already given them the faith. It, it's not like they don't have any faith. They've already just stated, Peter said it and articulating for the rest of the disciples that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. We understand who you are. Okay, so they have faith. They've given up everything. They're following Jesus. And yet, their faith failed them. When they tried to throw out these demons. What's with that? Well, let's go back to the top of the mountain briefly. Let's go back and let's take a look at Peter. Because if you remember, he's seeing the most glorious scene. He's seeing Moses and Elijah who have come. The, the law and the prophets. Jesus, the preeminent one. The Jesus in the refulgence of his own Shekinah. Jesus, the son of God revealed before them. And what does Peter want to do? wants to build a tabernacle. Why do you want to build a tabernacle? For several reasons. One of which is I want to hold on to this. This is my dream come true. This is what I've imagined. This is the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus is here in power and glory. And we're going to take the world by storm. And while he's in the middle of articulating that, God appears in a cloud and, and interrupts him and said, that's not it at all. I mean, very close after this, where Jesus is going to repeat, you know, get this straight. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. How does the Son of Man in all of his glory get killed if you don't understand that you don't understand the kingdom? And Peter didn't understand it. He was trying to fit the scene in front of him, the Shekinah glory of God. He's trying to fit that into the concept or the confines of his own mind. His fallen, sewer-bound mind. And he's trying to establish that as the interpretation of what he's saying. Well, this exact same thing is going on at the bottom. You see, these men had been given the power to cast out demons. They've been given the authority. And they have been given the faith that requires that. And Jesus says, you've got, if you just had a little bitty time of faith, you could do what I'm calling to you. But they already have the faith. Now, I'm going to bring that out in the next verse because that's exactly where Jesus is going to go with this in his frustration. He's going to talk about their faithlessness. 
But knowing that these men have already been granted the gift of the faith necessary to do this. I know I'm drilling that in, but this is one of the major points of this passage. And brothers and sisters, let let us not try to put ourselves in this equation. Because these men have been given the faith to cast out demons. You've been given the faith to do the tax that God has for you. And it's not casting out demons. It's not healing the sick. It's not raising the dead. It is not the things that these apostles would do. He's given you the faith to accomplish what you need to do. And you suffer from the same ineffectiveness and failure that these men do for the same reason. That's why this is so important for us to see. So, nonetheless, I want you to see that um, uh, Jesus goes on and he addresses this in the next verse. This is a killer verse, folks. Let's make sure we see and understand what it says. Verse 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Whoa, that doesn't sound like Jesus meek and mild, does it? Uh, Those are harsh words. So let's make sure we understand what he means. First of all, who's he talking to? What does he mean when he says generation? Uh, Who's the target that, that he's referring to? Well, that word generation, and I know that we've discussed this on several times, the word generation can mean several things. In, in its most common usage, we use that to refer to a people group designated by when they were born. In other words, in a broad sense right now, I am of the older generation, and some of you are of the younger generation. But uh, we get more detail than that, don't we? I mean, there's baby boomers, there's Gen X, there's the Gen Ys, there's Gen Z, there's the millennials. There's all kinds of, of, of generations. And usually they're about 15 years apart. So in that sense, when Jesus refers to this generation, he's referring to his contemporaries. Those who are alive, born in the same general time that he is. Okay, But that's not all that the word generation means. The word generation is quite often used to talk about people not grouped together by age, but grouped together by mindset, by morality, by their values, by their ethnicity, by their cultures, by their outreach on life, uh, by their outlook on, on life. And so therefore, that kind of expands it beyond the idea of time into any group. So therefore, what Jesus is saying to Pilate here is that the generation is everyone who is faithless and twisted. Okay, and we're going to talk about what that means. So who's he talking to then? If that's what the meaning of generation is, well, almost everyone fits into at least one aspect of that. So therefore, I kind of think we need to talk about sort of concentric circles as we get closer and closer to who he's actually talking about. On the far edges of that circle would be the, the, the Romans, the Greeks, and the great culture that is, surrounds that because they are all alive at the time that Jesus is. And yes, they are absolutely faithless and absolutely twisted. And it's almost kind of redundant to say they're faithless when they don't even know about Jesus yet. 
but they would be included to a degree in the generation, but very, very much on the edges. We need to come in closer, but because the boundaries that I think Jesus is really talking about would be the boundaries of Israel, the boundaries of the Jews. They are people who think alike. They are, have the same ethnicity, the same culture, and they believe in the same God, or at least they profess to believe in the same God. And so when Jesus refers to this generation, he's referring to the Jews. And I think particularly, to bring it in a little bit closer, the Jews who have seen him and heard him, who have been privy to his miracles and heard his fantastic teaching, and yet are faithless and twisted in their belief. We would include the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, but also the everyday people, the curiosity seekers, the miracle chasers, all those who have been exposed to Jesus' teaching and for one reason or another are not accepting it as truth. But then, brothers and sisters, we need to come in even closer, and here's the sad part. Because, yes, he's talking about the Greeks and Romans, yes, he's talking about the Jews, but not primarily. Primarily, He's talking to his apostles. And we need to keep that in mind, folks. Because the, the, this is primarily, he's saying to these apostles, these ones that he has spent so much time on, these ones that he is not going to cast out, but is still going to mold and, and prepare to be the very foundation of his church. At this particular point in time, he turns to them and he says, you are faithless and twisted. Wow, we are the descendants of these apostles, so this becomes very, very relevant to all of us. Let's take a look at those two words and see what Jesus means by them. First of all, the word faithless, well, that's pretty easy, isn't it? To be faithless is to be without faith. The opposite of having faith is the faithlessness, to have no faith. And so he's talking about unbelief. So therefore, he is identifying a very large part of, uh, of the world, but also his own apostles as being without belief. But wait a minute, as I said before, these men have belief. They, they know Jesus is the Son of God, and they followed him. So obviously, he's speaking in degrees here. There's, there's a degree in which they have no faith, okay? Now, I, I want to make... A caveat very clear about this idea of how the disciples or how the apostles fit into this formula. When Jesus turns to them and says, you are faithless and twisted. I believe that what he is saying is to the degree to which you have allowed the culture to influence you rather than the kingdom. You are faithless and twisted. I gave you the faith. I, I've given you the power. I've given you the authority. I've taught you well. And, and when the Holy Spirit comes, all of this is going to be passed. But for right now, at this moment, to the degree that you reflect the culture around you, to the degree that you incorporate your preconceptions into your theology and Christology, to that degree, you will always fail. And your faith will be ineffective towards doing what you have been called to do. This is hugely important. This is getting right down to the nitty gritty. In fact, when we talk about faithless, when he says you're faithless, well, doesn't that sort of 
assume that there's some faith there to have to be less? I mean, it's redundant to say well, someone who has no faith whatsoever is an idol worshiper like like, like the, the Greeks and the Romans. It, for, for them to be faithless is expected. But he's talking to his disciples who have been given the gift of faith. And they're not using it. And the reason they're not using it is because they have allowed the culture to sneak in and to divert them. That brings us to the word twisted. The word twisted is translated by the New American Standard as perverted, by the NIV as perverse. It is a word that means to take something that is straight and to make it crooked. It means to take something that is simple and straightforward to make it convoluted and confused. It means to take the straight path of the kingdom of God and deform it and defile it. And so therefore, when he's talking about the faith of those who have twisted that faith, you can see he's talking exactly what I've been telling you, that you have taken my words. You have taken what I have taught you. You you weren't on top of the mountain, so you didn't hear my father say, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You haven't taken that. You know, I'm sure they don't know about it right at this moment. But you, you, you're not listening to my words. And therefore, you're ineffective because you're taking what I teach you. You're taking this, this beautiful religion, this beautiful gospel that I am sharing with you. And you're twisting it and manipulating it. And you're fitting it into your understanding and your agenda and your objective. And that's not faith, folks. That is faith that won't actually work. And faith is the very foundation of our relationship in Christianity. Hebrews says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so therefore, I think that basically what Jesus is saying to these men and to us is that these men here that you see are not going to be able to accomplish the tasks that I have for them as long as their head is in the culture. Let me repeat that. This is very important, brothers and sisters, because we continue to do it today. These men, with the faith and the power and the authority that I have given them, will not be able to accomplish what I have set aside for them to accomplish in the kingdom of God as long as their heads are in the sewer. As long as their heads are in their culture, as long as they continue to interpret everything through the prism of the culture, they are never ever going to accomplish what I have called them to accomplish. And therefore, that is the reason, at least in my mind, why... They are unable to throw this demon out. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we need to pay very close attention to this, okay? Really. I mean, he's not talking to the Greeks and Romans. He's not talking to the pagans. Yes, he may be talking to the Jews, but there was never a group of people, literally in history up until that point, who were as squeaky clean, who were as religious They are worshipers of Yahweh. They go over and above to try to do everything to keep the law of God. He's calling them faithless and twisted. And his disciples who have followed him, he is calling faithless and twisted. Oh, did I have things I wanted to say now. Now, I'm serious. 
Because I look around me at the church, I look even in this church, I look at myself in the mirror, and I see a group of faithless and twisted people to a very large degree. I look at evangelical Christianity around me, and I see the most amazing twisting and and change. Basically, what Jesus is telling us here is that you've got a very narrow path to walk. There's a ditch on the right, and there's a ditch on the left. The left ditch is unbelief. The right ditch is perverse belief. And we thread our way right through the middle of that. And true effective faith is going to be found on the straight and the narrow. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But I just want you to think about what would Jesus have to say to you? What would Jesus have to say to this church? If he were to come here and take a look at our effectiveness and the degree to which we are influenced by the culture, when we start bringing the culture into the world, in, into the church, and we start redefining what we believe and what morality is and the ethical standards of the kingdom, when we start uh, looking at the culture and saying, because it is the mores and the, and the acceptance of the culture in order to be relevant, we have to diminish what scripture says. We have to bring it down. We have to adjust ourselves to the culture. What do you think Jesus would say to that? Oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long will I have to put up with you? How long before I'm rid of you? Basically what he says to his own disciples. And I want to turn to that because that also is hugely significant. Um, as as we see Jesus... Uh, um, taking out that frustration on his disciples. Nah, not frustration. Nah, I shouldn't use the word taking out. Um, it's a righteous anger at what he's seeing. Now, I, I just want you to imagine something. I mean, we just saw this. We just saw Jesus in his glory on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, right? We just saw God in the flesh. So we know who we're talking about. Can you imagine how Jesus must have felt when he descended that mountain after that glory, that presentation of Shekinah, and he walks right down into a bunch of unbelieving, twisted, apostate disciples who are moving like turtles towards where he wants them to be, holding on to the culture still under the influence of the enemy. Can you imagine what it was like For the perfectly righteous and holy son of God to take on the attributes of a human being and come and walk around in this sewer. I mean, I I was born in this sewer, folks, as all of you were. I'm a child of this sewer. I'd still be in it if I hadn't been transformed. But something's happened to my life. Something happened to my heart. I am repugnated when I'm up against blasphemy and, and, and blatant immorality. It makes me sick to my stomach when I'm around evil. The, the hair on the back of my hair, my neck stands up and I begin to sweat. I have a reaction when I'm in the face of evil and blasphemy and and blatant immorality. Can you imagine the way it was with Jesus? So, of course, he's going to come and look at this at this this failure of of the very power and faith that he's given to his disciples. And yes, it's very understandable that he would say, how long am I going to be here 
Now, praise God, it doesn't mean so I can cast you away from me. Because these are the very ones he's going to build his church on. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that I'm through with you and, and, and I can't wait to get away from you. No, I, I, I can't wait till you're sanctified. I can't wait till you're glorified. I can't wait till you're more like me, you know, that, that you're not walking around this bundle of sinfulness that is so wrapped up into the world that you can't do anything that I've called you to do. And brothers and sisters, that's the church today, I'm afraid. Our hands are so tied by the sin we see in the culture, we can hardly, hardly operate along kingdom standards. Well, anyway, back to the text. Um, Jesus, at the end of this very harsh statement, he says, I'm not going to heal this boy. Get rid of him. Is that what he says? I hadn't found any faith around here. You're a bunch of faithless and twisted people. So get this boy out of my face. I don't want any kind of demon coming close to me. Is that what he said? Of course not. He said, bring this unto me. Now, again, Luke doesn't want to divert us, so he keeps our focus on right where we are. But Mark tells us there's actually a conversation that goes on between Jesus and the Father. You know, and again, very poorly uh, translated and not translated, but taught in so many circles. The the Father says, have mercy on us. You can heal him. And Jesus says, no, wait a minute. You you can heal him. It was just a little bit of faith. And And the man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Boy, what a beautiful statement that so many of us turn to and say, that's me. I believe, but I don't believe enough to cast out that demon. I believe, but I don't have faith to do what you called me to do. And and, and so therefore, my unbelief is getting in the way and clogging my ability. So Jesus says, well, as soon as you get faith, a faith enough to save this boy, come back and let me know and I'll save him. Is that what he says? No, you're seeing mercy. You're seeing grace. You're seeing compassion. You're seeing Jesus taking someone who can't save themselves and can't have any faith. And a father who just admitted he didn't have any faith. And a bunch of apostles he's just said are faithless. In the midst of all this faithlessness, Jesus heals the boy. So where does my own free choice come into this? It's all about Jesus. It's all about his sovereignty. It's all about his choice. He healed the boy and released him from the chains of sin that bound him. So he calls the boy to him. Notice what happens here. I find this very interesting. Look in the 42nd verse. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. While Jesus says, bring the boy to me, I'm going I'm to heal him. As this demon approaches the Almighty... One last show of total defiance. The, the word that is translated this uh, as, as threw him on the ground. Byron, I thought of you when I, when I read the, what this word actually means. It, it is a word used of boxers and wrestlers. This is the Friday night smackdown uh, in, 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 in ancient times. Okay, because that's exactly what this demon did to the boy, literally smacked him down on the ground. That's what it means. Mark tells us that it was was even more uh, uh, vicious than that. 
Um, if I can find it. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy's like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. That, that's the way that this demon was mistreating them. Now, isn't it interesting that when we see Jesus confronted with demons in other parts of the gospel, we see a dialogue between Jesus and the demon. Like way back in the synagogue at Capernaum, the demon said, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And, and when he threw out the demon in, in the garrison, a uh, demoniac, the, the, he came out and says, you are the Son of God Most High. And he was terrified and begged him, don't throw us into the abyss. There, there, was, there was at least the acknowledgement of who he was. Not with this demon. One last show of defiance. One last injury to this boy just to show that he could do it. And then he comes out screaming. Brothers and sisters, I find this to be a very scary picture in scripture, because this is our enemy, and, and, and our enemy is not only defiant, he's maniacally deluded. He, he, he doesn't believe that, 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 that God can vanquish him. He believes, and he will believe until he goes into the lake of fire, that somehow he's going to overcome God and take over the throne of the cosmos. He's a liar, and he lies to himself, and he believes his own lie. And so, therefore, he actually believes that he can have you. He actually believes that he can turn you. He actually believes as you walk down that narrow path that he can push you into the left or the right completely. And so he will never stop. He will never rest. He will never slow down until his, as I said, until he goes into the lake of fire. But praise God, as strong as this demon is, he's no match for the line of Judah. And that's what we see next. Because Jesus said. Rebuke the unclean spirit. And healed the boy. And gave him back to his father. He rebuked the spirit. Now that word rebuke. It kind of has a special meaning. We see it in a variety of places. Where Jesus is setting things straight. All right. In other words. When uh, Peter's mother-in-law had a, a fever. He rebuked the fever. When they were out on the waters and the wind and waves were chaotic and sinking the boat, he rebuked the winds and the waves. And here there's a demon that has the boy completely under his grasp and he rebukes that demon. Now, when you rebuke, when Jesus rebukes, it is not only to cast the demon out, it is to replace the chaos that was there with order. Okay, that's what the Holy Spirit did at creation. It hovered over the deep that was in chaotic. And it brought order to the world. God's order. His plan. And so therefore, when he cast out the rebuke, the fever, he replaced it with health and with a healthy fever the way that it should be. When he, when he rebuked the winds and the waves, he replaced the chaos with order, with calm and balance. When he throws out this demon... He replaces it with cleanseness, with purifying. It's not just to do a miracle. Jesus is so interested in the spiritual well-being of the people he works his miracles on. And that also is evident here. 
when we read that he gave him back to his father. What a tender scene that is. That the father, so full of anxiety, so full of doubt, so full of fear, living with his only son and watching this demon just trying day by day to try to destroy him. Jesus heals him, rebukes the demon and gives him back to his father. Again, this is this is a theme. It's not an isolated incident because, you see, he didn't just heal the paralytic. He forgave him of his sins. He, he, he didn't just uh, um, heal the, the little girl who was the, the, the daughter of Jairus. He was also concerned that she had something to eat. He didn't just cast the demon out of the, of the Gerasene, uh, Gesserine, Gadarene is easier for me to say, the Gadarene demoniac, but he clothed him and he gave him actually a job. He gave him purpose and meaning in his life for the first time. So he doesn't just throw this out. He gives him back to his father. And that's, again, that beautiful picture that we saw in Nain, isn't it? Where the widow of Nain was about to bury her son and Jesus healed him, raised him from the dead and gave him back to his mother. What a compassionate, loving um, uh, healer he is. I like the way that um, William um, Hendrickson, sorry, um, says that he's a healer with heart. And that's exactly who Jesus is. He's a, a healer with heart. Well, brothers and sisters, let me see if I can wrap this up very quickly because um, there are two themes here that I think are of great significance. The first, as I entitle this, is this is, I believe, a living parable of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very similar to the one that we saw after the, the parable of the sower when they're going to the other side to heal that demoniac. But this time we see it start in glory. We see the beginning of it. We see the nature of God's redemptive plan. He sent Moses. He sent Elijah. He worked it out through his covenants in the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, who is the radiance of God's glory, the very imprint of his nature. And so we have seen that and we saw that cloud engulf Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And when it dissipated, there's a man standing there. We saw his glory, but now we see the man and the man walks down the mountain and confronts evil and casts it out. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus came to do, to confront evil, to to set the captives free, to release us from our sinfulness. To go to the cross to atone for our sins. To live a perfect life so that we might have righteousness. Now I know that some people hear that and they look at the comparison that I'm making. And they say, so what? You know, it's all Hebrew mythology anyway. So that's just a good metaphor that they came up with. I, I, I can't help you. I just can pray that one day the Lord will soften your hearts. But there are people who would hear this and something strange has begun to happen in their lives. All of a sudden, you're convicted of your sins. They, 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 they bother you. They never used to bother you. You used to be perfectly happy doing all those sinful things. But now, all of a sudden, they kind of they, they, they stick with you, you know. And, and, and where you used to couldn't stand to even talk about God, now you have a desire to be reconciled to him. And you start to fear what's going to happen after you die. 
And all of these things start working in you. Let me tell you something. that The, the prayer is that Jesus is working in your heart and bringing you out of darkness into his light. And if that is you, let me just give you one little bit of advice. Jesus will have you. You're not going to be able to run from him. You can run from one end of this world to the other. You can be like Jonah and try to go to the far reaches of the world. Or you can be like me and waste a very big chunk of your adult life. But you're not going to escape Jesus. Because if he wants you, he's the one who has come specifically. Jesus came down that mound. There's one person he saved. And that was this boy with a demon. He has come to save you, my dear friend. If that's true, then turn, repent, accept him as Lord and Savior, trust and believe in him with your whole heart. And if you do that and you mean it, and it really comes from the heart, I can guarantee you on the authority of Scripture, you will be saved. And you will spend eternity with that Lord. But there's also another theme here, and actually I think this is probably the primary theme of what Jesus is or what Luke is actually putting together for us. And, and that has to do with these apostles. You, you see, when we first saw that story of the trip to the other side, it was all Jesus. But really, if we're going to understand this, and this is what I said, I just don't have time to develop all of this context. But if we go back to that parable of the sower and the soils, we see the battle plan of the kingdom. We see God's redemptive plan laid out for us there perfectly clearly. A sower went out into the field to sow. The seeds are the gospel. The sower is Jesus. The field is the world. Now we see Jesus preparing 12 men, 11 of whom will stick, to be the sowers of the next generation. That's what we notice about that sower. It was sustainable. This year's crop is next year's evangelist. And, 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 and then we saw that beautiful illustration of them getting in the boat to go to the other side. And we saw a storm come up and Jesus was asleep. And the disciples learned a very important lesson. One that they obviously haven't learned or aren't practicing now. And that is that as long as Jesus is on your boat, you're safe. Take Jesus out of the equation, folks. Try to fit him into the confines of this culture and you're going to sink. That's, that's the reality of it. You stay afloat when Jesus is the one guiding, directing, and sustaining the boat. And then they go to the other side and they heal the demoniac. They clothe him. They put him out as a missionary. And we see a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel. We've seen the same thing here. But the emphasis, brothers and sisters, is on Peter at the top of the mountain. And, and, and these other nine at the bottom of the mountain doing the same thing. You see, let, let me just put it to you this way, please. The path to the kingdom of God is a narrow one. We know that. We, we know it's a narrow gate, it's a hard path, but it leads to light. But it's a narrow path, and, and we use the analogy all the time. There's a ditch on the right and there's a ditch on the left. And this particular one, Jesus has defined two ditches. One is unbelief, and the other is perverse belief. Now, the ditch on the left, brothers and sisters, we're not abject unbelievers. We, we believe in Jesus, but so do those apostles. You see, but what they had done is they had allowed a degree of unbelief to infiltrate their lives. Doubt. Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. I must be rejected and suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And I must be killed and I will be resurrected on the third day. I don't think they believe that. 
Because I don't think they lived their life according to it. Do you believe it? And do you live your life as if it were the main reality in your life? That Jesus is going to come again. And he's going to be interested in how you're doing when he gets here. Is that the most important thing in your life? Well, if you're not, then unbelief has somehow tripped its way in to your view of Jesus and your, in your faith. But it's the ditch on the other side that is the most dangerous. Because you see, the ditch on the other side, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And sometimes it's very hard to discern it. You know, <laughs> some of the most horrendous apostate, nefarious churches in this country are flooding the airwaves with their music. And doesn't sound bad. It's actually very good. The words are fine. No problem. But that's just another way of them infiltrating in, in, in the same group of people is teaching that their apostles can actually raise people from the dead. And so they've got their youngsters going out to graveyards and lying on graves of righteous people to absorb their holiness. This is far-fetched lunacy. And yet, it is being taught as the perversion of the true faith. And brothers and sisters, as I said, this is not Jesus meek and mild. This is not Jesus, let's tolerate everyone. This is not Jesus, let's, let's, let's talk about unity before we talk about any kind of doctrine. This is Jesus saying, come on. If you're going to be the church that I want you to be, if you're going to be the Christian that I want you to be, if you're going to accomplish the task that I put before you, it's going to require faith. And I can give you the faith. But if you bury your head in, your, in, in the sewer that you live in, that faith is going to be ineffective for the kingdom of God. So let me leave you with this. The degree to which you and I, I'm not uh, pointing a finger at you, I'm pointing it at myself. But the degree to which we are influenced by the culture is the degree to which we will fail in our faith. Let me just repeat that. If we learn the lesson that is here in this passage, the degree to which we try to twist the words of Jesus and twist what we are taught in the Gospels to the confines and the influence of the culture will be the degree to which we are incapable of accomplishing what God has called us to do. That means he's not going to do it. It just means he's going to go someplace else. So I asked you this before, and I'll leave you with this question. If Jesus were to walk in today, right now, this moment, and he were to sit down with you one-on-one, and have a conversation with you about your life, your belief, your faith, your accomplishments, what you're doing for the kingdom. What would he say to you? Would he say, well done, good and faithful servant? You have been faithful in a little. I will make you the ruler over much. Or would he say, oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long will I have put up with you? Praise God, he's not going to throw you out. How long until you have your sanctified and glorified body? But Lord, but brothers and sisters, we can't give ourselves faith, but we certainly can augment it. We can help it. We can 
immerse ourselves in the means of grace, reading his scriptures, studying his word, listening to sermons, expositing the word, praying before him, working in his service, taking the sacraments, being a a, a vital part of his church. These are the ways that we strengthen our faith. And then maybe we'll get to the point that we'll get to in the 17th chapter where the disciples say to Jesus, increase our faith, Lord. Give me more faith so that I can do your will. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we um, digest this, and we look at this somewhat uh, often taught as a very benign scene or sometimes mistaught that what Jesus wants us to actually do is to go out and make claims and look for words and um, try to heal the sick and raise the dead. Uh, The Lord... We're not even taking care of the things you have given us. Uh, And our faith is so often um, blocked or impeded by the culture in which we live. I know this is a common theme, Lord, but it is also a common theme of Scripture. I pray that you will will drill it into us, that you will teach us this so that we might indeed be the ones you have called us to be and to exercise the faith you you have given us towards the tasks that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.